You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. G'day, folks. Uh, welcome to the show and welcome back. I'm very pleased to say we've had a bit of a break, but we're finishing off season nine, ready to take you through to the end of the year. And today, we really have got a man after our own heart. Oh, yeah. yeah this is a guy who's been spearing howlers who've been dressed up as heroes throughout history. Uh, he's got a book about it, which you're going to tell us about now, Mikey. And I'm re- really pleased to be able to welcome on the show a guy, well, I'm going to call him Otto, but Otto English is your pen name, but your real name is actually Andrew Scott, isn't it, Andrew? That's correct. I am a fake myself. Because yes. uh, well, you, your first book, which is an international bestseller, was Fake History. Yes. Yeah. Which is a, a fantastic read. But the new one is called Fake Heroes. And look, I'm not going to say you're being iconoclastic or I'm not going to say you're being history's Grinch, but you are sort of pointing out the feet of clay that many of our heroes have. Yeah, so this book was inspired really by uh, uh, my working life as a journalist when I was asked to write an obituary of the Queen Mm. uh, about a year before she died for Politico, the American-European news website. And... And I said to them, I'll do it on condition I can write about Mrs. Windsor, not the Queen. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that gave me the idea for the book. Because then I thought, I'll take like 10 people where we know the myth. And then I will sort of pull back the cloak. Not knock them off the, off the plinth, so to speak. But pull back the cloak, pull back the cloak behind them and see what's going on in the, in the true story of the person. See, one, one of the things I, I love about you know, reading your book, and it's something that Paul and I like to look at as well, when we were taught history at school, there was always a strong narrative, and the strong narrative needed the hero. Mm. I love how you, you point out the story of Gilgamesh and how, particularly yeah. in West, Western culture, this idea, and I, I want to get the Greek right now, and Paul's going to laugh at me. <laughs> it's the... Um, Chaos. Yes, 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 thank you. It's the idea of eternal renown. Mm. Yeah. It's the old Thomas Carlyle, isn't it? You know, from his book that in, back in the 19th century, you know, his book was on heroes, hero worship and the heroic in history. And of course, he always contended that the history of the world is but the biography of great men. And that's something that we really wanted to spear when we did our show. <laughs> For a start, you know, half of history doesn't include men at all. I always love the fact that the best example I can always give of this is one of the great military disasters of the 19th century becomes the heroic poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Mm. There's, yes. always, there's a real tendency of us to try and recreate stuff-ups as heroic moments. So you've got some really big names in there, haven't you, Otto? You've got Che Guevara, you've got JFK, you've got Henry V. You've got a few people that we've already talked about, people like Scott of the Antarctic, yeah. you know, how we explained that he really, really wasn't quite up to the job and certainly wasn't the hero that he was portrayed in the British or English 
press, as it were. Although I have to say, I have recently read that book by um, Apsley Cherard, Cherry Garrard, you know, that worst journey in the world. Yes, yes. And it, and it is pretty harrowing. So, you, you, like you say, you don't want to knock them off their plinth, but you do want to pull back the, uh, the cloak. But who do you want to talk about today, Otto? Which ones are, are you most fascinated by? Well, I mean, Scott is an interesting place to start, yeah. even though you've done it before, because what really surprised me was, people said to me, you know, who do you think you're going to get criticised for going after most of all? I thought it would be Mother Teresa. <laughs> I've, had almost, I've had almost no pushback on that, apart from a very religious friend of mine who took, well, we, you know, we had a good nature discussion about it at, a, at a, one of my book events. But Scott of the Antarctic has really raised some people's, you know, the hackles <laughs> on the back of their necks. Yeah. Because um, there's something about him and his Englishness and that journey. Yes. You know, there's forever, even now, actually, at the moment on Channel 5 over here, there's a show where somebody's recreating uh, both of Scott's expeditions walking to the South Pole in the kit of the time. You know, as, as you know, because you've done a show on it already, he had all the wrong kit. Wrong kit, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Including horses. Yeah, the wrong horses, the wrong, the wrong, the yeah. wrong machines. Yeah, didn't use dogs. Well, well so he had some dogs, but my, my favourite detail about that, they were Russian dogs and they could only <laughs> they, speak Russian. They speak Russian, that's right. And wasn't he dressed up in like Burberry Macintoshes yeah. and stuff like yes. that? So I had a bit of a row with somebody who was a sort of Scott fanatic about this and they went, well, of course, of course he needed Burberry because he was man-hauling. Yeah. Oh, of course, yes. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but also, too, you have to remember that Amundsen himself was a bit of a wacko. Um, yes. yeah. do, do, do you know the story about the time he tried to, he and a, a German biologist tried to train bears to be pack animals for the Arctic? <laughs> and and at, at one point, in one of his expeditions on the North Pole, Amundsen found this cub who he thought he could raise to be a pack animal. Unfortunately, the, the cub turned on Amundsen, attacked him, was, was ethered and, and killed. But he's still stuffed in a museum in Oslo. Oh, my goodness. And the other, the other weird thing about Amundsen, before we get back to Scott, the other thing about Amundsen that never gets mentioned, have furious sex life, but only with married women. Ah. Well, Natsen, who was the sort of, the, the sort of godfather of Norwegian uh, Arctic exploration, who was his mentor... He also had a propensity for married women, and it including is Scott's wife, wasn't it? It is said, yes. What? Yes. Well, well, let's face it: if you are going to have an affair with someone while their partner's at one of the poles, <laughs> it's a pretty open door. It's a pretty good door, open door. It's a bit rock and roll, isn't it? Really, yeah. people. These sort of rock and roll stars, of yeah, the Oasis, Blur, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I do know with the Mother Teresa story. Obviously, you got all that stuff back in the eighties, haven't you? I remember when I was growing up with Christopher Hitchens, and um, yes, quite quite happy to lay into her. Um, so I suppose in in many ways her bubble has been burst a little bit. But the one that I really like, and perhaps you can tell us a bit more about this one, Otto, is the Coco Chanel. Because yes. you know, I must admit, growing up, I completely fell for her, for that one. I didn't know any of this story. But what you've shown us is that yeah, a bit like what we were talking about in the rise of fascism yeah. episode. Yeah, you know, how Britain is actually stuff stuff full of fascists in the thirties, and so was you know Coco Chanel was very much part of that. Yeah, I mean, of all the people in the book, the one person, you know, you spend a lot of time researching the person, reading about the person. You all, you almost feel like you've spent time with the human being, even though they've been dead for 50 years. 
And in her case, she was the one person I thought I wouldn't have been able to stand her in real life. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, she I, I comes mean, across as a really nasty piece of work. Really narcissistic, manipulative mm. liar who uh, a lot of people reinvent their past and retell their story and make stuff up, but she took it to the next level. You know, she completely reinvented her past and mm. then had a series of boyfriends who were just, apart from the first two, so Boy Capel, who kind of set her on her path. It was yeah. quite a nice English guy who actually served as the inspiration for a lot of her outfits. Oh, and, really? and the Chanel Number no. 5 bottle is probably based on one of his whiskey decanters, which right. is a fascinating bit of yeah. When you think about it, it looks a bit like a whiskey decanter. Anyway, after he died in a car crash, she had this series of terrible, terrible, terrible human beings as her boyfriends, including uh, the Duke of Westminster, Bendel Grosvenor, who was perhaps mm. the worst person, you know, in quite a lot of competition in the British Isles in the 1920s and 30s. An out-and-out bigot, racist, fascist, uh, anti-Semite, and even by the standards of his time, a terrible homophobe who basically blackmailed his own brother-in-law and revealed he was gay, causing his brother-in-law to have to flee Britain to America where he died in sort of shame five years later. A ghastly person. If Chanel had had a brief fling with him, fine, but it went on for a decade. Yeah, it went on for ages. She shared those politics. That's yeah. right. I couldn't believe just how long they were involved with each other. You know, we're talking, yeah. And as you say, we're talking about Bendor Grosvenor. He's the second Duke of Westminster. At the time, he was the richest man, they reckon, in Britain, you know, after the Queen. In the British Empire, the, yes. Yeah, yeah. And really? You know, I remember, well, where I come from, Macclesfield, we've got the Grosvenor Centre. You know, he owns, owns half of Cheshire. Oh, yeah. hang on, there are pubs in Sydney called the Grosvenor. Yeah, we see this yes. guy, he, was, he yeah. was really influential. He was mates with Churchill, he was mates with all the big hobnobs, but he wasn't out-and-out out fascist. As you say, he's also a bit of a homophobe, he's probably a racist, misogynist as well. You know, but he was, he was actively involved in the fascist movement. Yes, so there was a group called the Right Club, yep. which was a sort of group of fascist British people, well, predominantly English, but although there were Scottish people in it, there's, Scots don't like us to mention this, but there were <laughs> no, Scots in the fascist... Yeah. Anyway, we'll quickly move on from that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were a group of Hitler... Well, initially, they were Mussolini enthusiasts, mm. but then they became Hitler enthusiasts, and they were right at the heart of the British establishment... And of course, famously, um, Edward VIII, mm, uh, of course, his brief time as king, really uh, was probably almost certainly pushed out, as Andrew Lowney has argued in a recent book. He was almost certainly pushed out because he was a fascist sympathiser. Mm. All that stuff about being in love with Mrs. Simpson was just a bit of a distraction. Mm -hmm. um, and so Chanel is hanging out with these people. And a, and a young man called Winston Churchill. Yeah. Yes, of course. So how does Chanel, how does she get involved in that, um, Otto? How does she get drawn into that world? After um, her, her partner, Boy Capel, got married, he kind of had brought her a little bit into English society. But she had this friend who um, basically introduced her to... Westminster on a boat called the Cutty Sark, not the famous Cutty Sark no. that is parked here in Greenwich. The Clipper. Some, another, another Cutty Sark, which had appropriated the name during the 1920s and 30s. Right. And 
um, with her friend Vera. She went aboard the ship and met him, and that's how the story began. And she, she was already there. world famous by then. She was already at the top of her Incredibly game. Incredibly famous, middle aged yeah, by yeah. the standards of the time. She was well into her forties, and uh, a yeah, you know, hugely successful person. Mm. So in the middle of the First World War, French. Vanity Fair, I think it was, said any woman who is not wearing a piece of Chanel is hopelessly out of fashion. So she had become uh, an icon even during the First World War. You mentioned the First World War, but the Second World War is when her legacy becomes even more troubled. Was she a fascist collaborator? Yes. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Because there's a show on in London at the moment, isn't there, Otto? It's got some so, of this stuff. So at the VNA, uh, the Victorian Albert Museum uh, in in South Kensington at the moment, there is this big exhibition which was originally on in Paris, sponsored by the Chanel Corporation. Oh, right. Which, I mean, I went along having a sense they weren't going to really address it because somebody who I, I do some work for, do some writing for, had been, and he said, well, I saw no mention of the fascists anywhere. <laughs> and I said, well, there might be a reason for that. It yeah. is sponsored largely by <laughs> Chanel. Chanel, yeah. <laughs> to their credit... They do acknowledge the sort of Chanel-sized elephant in the room, in the first room, and say, you know, she had this relationship with this guy called Dinklage, who everyone called Spats, uh, from the 1940s. But then they set out the evidence side by side in some, uh, you know, in, in one of the spaces, and it really doesn't stack up. I mean, Chanel, Chanel had a Nazi code number she had a Nazi code name. She was Agent Westminster after her previous boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, she went on two missions for German intelligence to Spain right. uh, and was actively engaged. Now, you can argue about the reasons and the motivations for going on those missions, but she went on the missions and other people had far harsher treatment meted out to them for far less. It's interesting, you know, looking at that, that heritage, I have to confess, a few years ago when I started doing a bit more history work, I did move my Hugo Boss ties to the back of the wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but that's a bit of a myth as well. We have to be careful with All that. All right. I can get my yeah, ties yeah, back out. I think you can probably get your ties back out again because people think that Hugo Boss designed the... SS, uh, SS uniforms. SS uniforms. He didn't. He made the uniforms. Oh, okay. There is a slight distinction. He provided the cloth but he didn't actually design the outfits. Well, it's you know, a bit of an urban myth. I mean, yeah. it's the main reason I still haven't bought a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned rock and roll. I would say a quarter of the people I went to university with had a Che Guevara poster on their wall and they were, they were pretty much convinced he was the bass player from The Clash. <laughs> How important is that good-looking Shea poster in, in, in actually celebrating his myth? Just as I actively disliked Chanel, I had a real problem with Guevara because I ended up liking him and hating him. It was a real sort of double-edged coin, that one. Yeah, that famous picture, the heroic gorilla in English translation. He's such a is, spunk. Is, is, yeah, the guy's a good-looking guy. But isn't there a bit of photoshopping in on, on that, though, Otto? Yes, there is, correct. Very good. <laughs> there is photoshopping. Early photoshopping yeah. was used 
to make the image even sexier. So he's raising his eyes almost uh, like Messiah-like. Yes, Christ on it's the cross. It's a Messiah-like image, isn't it? Um, if you compare the two images, the original image of the photograph taken, the, 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 the laser image, which is actually on the cover of the book, was manipulated by someone in England and actually was first printed in Private Eye, the satirical magazine here. And it was deliberately done that, that, that way. It was some, they wanted to have some sort of angelic eyes or something to go with the rest of the picture. Is that right? Yes, it's exactly that. Yeah. He looks a bit like Alexander the Great. You know, that yes. Alexander yes, the Great yes, pose yes. Where, where Alexander the Great is looking up and away. Great to acknowledge that, Mikey, because... That's what pop stars do. David Bowie used to do that look. Craftwork mm. uh, used to do that look. Yeah. <laughs> all I, I, sorts of people did that look. I, I can still imagine, you know, when, when all three of the Clash turn around at the opening bars of uh, uh, London's, Call. London's, London's Calling, Calling. there's yeah. Che Guevara on the bar, on the base, <laughs> turning into it. Yeah. But it is, it is about that need to create heroes, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean... He died. If you could time the moment of your death, he timed it superbly. You know, he died in late 1967. So just after the summer of love and just before the revolutions of 1968, when people took to the streets of Paris and South America in protest, and they carried his image. Mm -hmm. People carried that image on cards and postcards, uh, you know, posters. It's almost like, going viral isn't mm, it mm, it's like instagram mm. or uh, or like having a viral youtube video that the image went viral and he became the most famous revolutionary in the world and is still the most famous revolutionary yeah still very much so yeah and t like you say timing is everything isn't it and i think there's you point that out in a few of the cases dying young yeah. always helps yeah, you know, always um, helps because yeah. if you want to create that mythology. Yeah, you know, whether it's James Dean or JFK. JFK, you know, yeah. If you if you can die young, then people are already um, wanting to be on your side. But it's quite with well, JFK is quite interesting. Just how much manipulation comes in from Jackie O, isn't it? That's a flipping amazing. I mean, I didn't know that until I researched and wrote the book. Mm -hmm. So we all grew up with. Well, I did. We yeah. those of us who grew up with the story of. Uh, Camelot and you know the cat the court of Camelot uh, 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 all of that was posthumously done mm. and when you actually realize why it was posthumously done it's like a eureka moment it was done because the musical Camelot <laughs> was like the big hit of the day yeah you know so on Broadway at the time uh, Richard Burton was starring with Julie Andrews in it. And the record of the soundtrack of the musical was a whopping big seller in America. You know, like yeah. one house in three had a copy of Camelot. <laughs> so again, this is a bit like going viral. Mm. Jackie Kennedy knew that everybody had that. And she herself had been a journalist and a PR person. That's you know, right. She understood public relations really, really well. So she gave this interview to Life magazine where she keeps, I mean, if you read the interview, it's mm. almost comical. She keeps citing the musical Camelot and the, then she recites in full the last verse of the musical, which mm. is uh, uh, each evening from, no, from December to December, as you go to sleep upon your cot, think back on all the tales you remember of Camelot. Mm. And that sort of took off. And people went, oh, yes, it was. It was like Camelot. And he was mm. king of... I mean, actually, 
the, the, even the musical of Camelot is nothing like that. He he's cheated on by Guinevere, and she goes off with Lancelot. So I'm not really sure. No, 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 <laughs> in fact, you know, in reverse. I mean, JFK was a, was a philanderer with, with the bad back, whose oh. whose who's daddy was a bootlegger who bought him an election. Yeah. Oh, did he buy him the election? Well, yeah, ah. there's a lot of talk about those Chicago votes to this day. There are lots of talks about that. I think uh, Joe Kennedy was a wrong one oh, in yeah. many, many ways. I mean, the guy lobotomized one of his children who was then disabled for the rest of her life. I mean, that's a shocking, shocking thing to do. Yeah, hidden away. That was horrible. He tried desperately, to, as the ambassador to London, he tried desperately to keep America out of the war. Mm-hmm. He did everything in his power to keep America out of the war, uh, uh, to the point where he basically said he didn't care what happened to Britain and he would trade with Germany anyway. And that's when he got kicked out of being ambassador of London, mm-hmm. and that ruined his own chances of ever being president, which mm-hmm. is why he threw all his efforts into his sons. Mm-hmm. But it's an old saying that you know, that uh, politics is show business for ugly people. And, <laughs> and the fact that JFK is probably one of the few American presidents who would make a good-looking list it's, it's, one of the reasons yes. why, it's one of the reasons why it's easy to eulogise the guy. That's absolutely correct. If we are talking about you know, heroes that you got in trouble for, the one that scared me the most when I started reading the book. Okay, I'm 61 and I grew up in Australia, but I went to high, I went to high school in the 70s where Tin Legs Bader was a yeah. hero. To the point where, when I was at my last year in high school, some friends and I decided to put together a funny radio play. And the skit was going to be, no one could hear Tin Legs Bader give out the battle plan or the flight plan because his legs were squeaking. It was a silly sim- And our teacher refused to let us do it because Tin Legs was still held in such high esteem. Yeah, yeah. Did you, as, a, as, a, as a Brit, did you have any trepidation looking at Tin Legs Bader? I picked him, weirdly, partly because I too, in my childhood, he was a bit of a figure. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly younger than you, but not considerably. I'm in my early 50s. So I grew up with that film, Reach for the Sky, yes. and, mm. and um, Kenneth Moore playing this incredibly affable guy who gets knocked down and picks himself up again and goes, carries on. Bader himself said that he was nothing like that. And he was quite vocal about it. He said, I'm nothing like that nice guy, Kenny Moore. And he <laughs> kept saying it. All, to yeah. anyone who would listen, all, I've, I watched multiple interviews with him and he kept saying it over and again, I'm not that guy. Um, and he certainly was not that guy. Uh, there are, however, hugely admirable qualities about the guy, yes. not least that he lost his legs and was not going to let him get in the way of him leading a full life. Mm. He'd been like this hugely competitive sportsman in his youth. He loved playing rugby, uh, loved playing cricket. He almost played for the, I mean, it wasn't professional because everything was amateur back then, but he was almost in the Harlequins team. He was almost in the England team. So he was a very proficient sportsman. So for anybody to lose their legs is a tragedy. Mm. For for somebody like Douglas to lose his legs was an out and out tragedy. And what he essentially did was he swapped the rugby pitch and the cricket pitch for the great game in the sky. But also, too, when he gets shot down, he was not the most fun guy to be a fellow prisoner of war with. No, 
I mean, he was uh, he was a terrible, a terrible, difficult man who, having been deprived of the air of airspace to play the game, he took to a new game, which was basically bullying the goons, you know, bullying the the, the guards and the caps. Mm. And there's this famous story about when I think it was Stalag Three, when 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 he was taken eventually from Stalag Three. Everybody was cheering and shouting and Douglas Bader thought, oh, brilliant, they're all waving me off and was waving back, but they weren't. <laughs> Both sides were celebrating the facts of his departure. Getting rid of him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Time for one more. Um, I know this is one that's quite interesting for you, Mikey, because you've written about this guy as well. Thomas Midgley. What I find interesting about him, and you talk about here, in your book, you know, they are huge figures, but Thomas Midgley is not someone that is generally discussed. Yet I'm, I'm going to quote from uh, Bill Bryson here. He was possessing an instinct for the regrettable that was almost uncanny. <laughs> Thomas Midgley, for those who aren't aware, and Otto will fill us in, Thomas Midgley was responsible for two of the greatest environmental disasters of the 20th century. Yes, somebody said, I, sadly I can't remember who it was, it might have been Bryce as well, no living organism in the 20th century caused so much environmental damage as <laughs> Thomas Midgley. Right. Um, he, he was the genius yes. who was employed uh, by American Big Oil to come up with a, uh, a solution to something called knocking, which was when... The, uh, in getting rid of the, the crank to crank start a car to have electric motors instead, they the, they needed to add something to the petrol to stop the the, the engine shaking. They, they basically needed a different type of, of fuel. And um, Midgley worked out that if you put lead in it, Here we go. it stopped this effect called knocking. When you talk about it, people go, oh, well, they didn't know. You know, they couldn't know. They couldn't have foreseen... But they absolutely could foresee what was going to happen because <laughs> Midgley himself got so seriously poisoned by lead, and everybody knew that lead was a poisonous substance and had done for a thousand years, that he spent three months recuperating in Florida before launching his product. And, wow. and when they launched it, they launched it as ethyl. Yes. If my research was right, they just chose that because they thought ethyl sounded like a friendly name. They called it ethyl because it sounded like they knew, everybody knew that ethanol stopped engine knocking. Right. But ethanol is expensive. Lead wasn't expensive. Right. So, so by, they, they, they kind of gave the impression, it's PR, isn't it? Yeah. They gave the impression. And, and when the employees in what became known as the House of Butterflies all started going crazy and jumping out of the windows on, like a, on, a, on an industrial scale, so people started to go, hmm, maybe there's something wrong with putting lead in <laughs> and, 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 I mean, and, and It took five decades to finally remove lead from petrol. Well, so, so at that time, so this is in the early 20s, they realised there was a problem because the papers started investigating. The New York Times went after the story and they all went after it. And there was like a big kind of congressional hearing where, which is very, very modern, yeah. where, the, where the oil companies brought their experts and the people who were the real experts sat on the other side and the sort of flamboyant oil experts all went, oh, there's nothing. It's like something out of The Simpsons or something. Oh, there's <laughs> nothing to worry about, you know. It's all fine. 
lead is good for you. You know, people like lead. Yeah? <laughs> and, and, so, and so, yeah, as you say, for 50 years, they... they they had lead and petrol. Insane, yeah. Well, well you, you mentioned Midgley ends up sick from, from huffing it, but here's one of the weird things. Actually, huffing the fumes was something Midgley did quite a bit in his experimentation, yes. which brings me to refrigeration. Yes. Refrigeration was a real problem in the early 20th century. Even Einstein got absolutely obsessed with the, with, the, with the idea of refrigeration. And people forget this. Einstein invented a kind of early fridge. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, unfortunately, guess what it did? It started knocking. Yeah. Uh. So <laughs> Einstein's fridge knocked like Billy Ho. So Thomas Midgley, fresh from the success of putting lead in petrol, went, aha, I will now resolve the great problem of fridges that blow up and knock. And he invented something called CFCs, chlorofluoride carbonates, yeah, is it? I don't yeah. remember, but CFCs is good enough, which, as we know, punched a hole about the size of North America in the ozone layer. We can't leave Thomas Midgley without talking about his rather strange death. Yes. So according to legend, hmm. Midgley um, developed, uh, he caught polio, and was very and ended up bedbound, and he designed a contraption for uh, bringing stuff to himself. You know, like bringing himself a cup of tea or so, something like that. And according to legend, he was accidentally killed by the contraption. Now I say according to legend because I became totally obsessed with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I became obsessed yeah. with that, and I read two books on the subject. One, I'm afraid I can't remember the author's name, but she wrote it 20 years ago. And she dug into the coroner's reports and everything and found there was no mention of him having an accidental death. All the signs pointed to suicide. Oh, mm. right. But, but he used... So he was killed by the contraption, yeah. mm. but almost certainly the there was a cover-up as to how he had died and they said it was accidental but the coroner left an open verdict on it because that's one thing i think we need to point out one of the reasons why i think he's, he's, he's in your book as well even though in hindsight we can look back at his work in his lifetime he was absolutely venerated yeah, yeah everyone yes. said yeah what what great achievements yeah and, <laughs> and it's true they were just blind faced uh, yeah lies really it's a bit like the yeah the guinness is good for you adverts the cigarettes will cure cure your cough adverts you yes know? and they were saying that lead in petrol is going to you know revolutionize the world and make everyone happy <laughs> well that's it yeah Okay, folks, so we're talking to Andrew Scott, also known as Otto English. We're talking about his book, Fake Heroes, which really does put the boot in to some of the biggest names in history. If you're a listener of our podcast, you will love this book. But please, uh, Otto, t you've got to tell me, is there someone who didn't make the book who you really wish you had included? Oh, so <laughs> when you do a book like this, uh, you know, you go and meet your publisher, in my case, is a guy called Ollie, my editor, and I had a slightly longer list of names. I will not reveal all of them. But <laughs> some of them... Are still alive? Them, still alive? Some of them... No, no, they're dead. Some of them left my editor going a little pale, should we put it like that? <laughs> uh, okay, we'll get on. I'll give you one example. Okay, right. I said Gandhi, of course, would be an interesting contender. Oh, okay, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, then no. both agreed, we both agreed 
that Gandhi, me as a white, yes. you know, Anglo-Saxon English guy, writing a chapter about Gandhi in a book called Fake Heroes would probably be uh, the wrong thing to do. Mm. Uh, it's not my place to do that. So um, Gandhi was left out. Mm. Um, and there were other people... That, the, the, the danger is, because the first book had a whole chapter on Winston Churchill, mm. the danger, and that was, that was kind of very divisive in the UK. Yes. It caused a lot of anger with some quite well-known historians in the country who really got very annoyed with me and went after me, um, which is fine because it sold lots of books. Good. <laughs> yeah. Good, good, good. But, but the, the weird thing about that story was that the most glowing review I had of my first book was from the International Churchill Society, which is was set up in his memory, right. saying, you know, this is pretty much what Winston Churchill was like, you know. So, uh, so there was even that was caused contradictions. So there were people that I wanted to talk about who I kind of shied away from. I mean, for example, Margaret Thatcher would have been a possible contender, mm -hmm. maybe a bit too recent maybe didn't quite fit with the other people in the book. So, and, and that probably would have upset people, but I didn't really want to go after another conservative prime minister, so hot in the hills or another one. My wife said, you're basically going to annoy all the people you didn't annoy the first time round, aren't you? Right? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, quite frankly, I think your wife's quote should be on the front of the book. <laughs> That's it. If you didn't skewer them the first time, you'll skewer them yeah. the second. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure talking to Otto English. The book is Fake Heroes. If you like our podcast, I can heartily recommend this book. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's right up our street. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Otto. Great to see you. And hopefully we'll, we'll get another book out of you before yeah. too long. Well, it's really great to meet you, mate. Thank you. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler.